In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. As you can see from our vestments this morning and from the color white up here on the altar, that today is a special day of celebration. Today is the Sunday of the Holy Cross. Well, think about it. In the wisdom of the ancient Greeks, the cross was the very last thing that anyone would choose to represent a religion. Only a fool would choose the equivalent of a gallows or a gas chamber to symbolize their belief. And to the ancient Jews, the cross was scandal and revulsion. In their thinking, what a strange people these Christians must be. Only criminals utterly cursed by God would be hung on a tree and left there to become carrion. Why does God represent his work in the world by the cross? How is it that this symbol of punishment and retribution, this symbol of retributive justice, is the sign of God's forgiveness and his mercy toward his people? Let's think about that a little farther, shall we? Now, there is within most people a longing for justice, isn't there? We long to see things set to rights. It's what holds our interest, no matter how cheesy the cop show is, because we want to see, will the bad guys get what's coming to them? It is a desire for justice that keeps us coming back to the newspaper day after day after day, watching the big trial, and everyone knows the feeling, don't they? We've all said it under our breath. Yeah, serves them right. They deserved it. And what would Superman be without truth, justice, in the American way? You see, we are naturally inclined toward justice, the justice that we see in the cross. But the other side of the cross is not at all natural to us. For the cross not only symbolizes God's demand for justice, it also symbolizes God's forgiveness. And friends, forgiveness finds no natural echo in our nature. Now this morning, I would like to illustrate this wholly unexpected, this completely bewildering scope of forgiveness in the cross of Christ. And to do this, I'd like to start in the Old Testament. So let me invite you to take out this blue handout, okay? You'll need this to get where we're going. Take out this blue handout. And you may be wondering where we're going, but hang in there just a second. I think you'll get the point. And I'd like to start with the Old Testament prophet Jeremiah. Poor old Jeremiah. <laughs> he was called to a wretched assignment. He'd been sent to a wayward and disobedient and obstinate people. They hated him. They hated God's message. And hence he was called to a life of rejection and lowliness. He had been cast into prison. 
and he'd been threatened with execution merely for speaking God's words. And as my kids would say, Jeremiah, it really stinks to be you. Well, here was this situation in 587 B.C. You can read about it there in Jeremiah 32. It says this, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. And Jeremiah was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. For Zedekiah, the king of Judah, had imprisoned Jeremiah, saying, Why do you prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I'm giving this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. King Zedekiah was on a campaign of positive mental attitude. Only politically correct speech was allowed. So there was poor old Jeremiah in prison for speaking God's word. And then his cousin Hanamel comes up to him with this real estate deal. See what it says? Buy my field that is at Anatoth in the land of Benjamin. And God says to Jeremiah, Now Jeremiah, you plunk down the shekels and I want you to buy this field. Well, put yourself in Jeremiah's sandals. Look, it's bad enough that he had already been thrown in jail for doing what God wanted him to do. But now he's asked to spend his own money on a field that would become utterly worthless in a matter of months. Now, why would it become worthless? Well, look at the message God had sent him to speak. The Babylonians were already besieging Jerusalem. The jig was up. The game was over. In just a few months, man, beast, and property rights would all be swept away. So Jeremiah pours out his complaint to God in verse 17. Look what he says. Oh, Lord God, it is you that made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arms. Nothing's too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of the fathers to their children after them. Oh, great and mighty God, whose name is Lord of hosts. And then Jeremiah goes on to say that God had given Israel everything, but the people, look at verse 23, but the people did nothing of all that God had commanded them to do. Therefore, you have made all this disaster come upon them. And then Jeremiah prays, look God, you want me to spend my very last nickel on a field as if nothing else were happening. You said you were going to destroy the nation. And God, if ever anybody deserved destruction, you know it's this people. Okay, now look at God's answer to Jeremiah. Isn't it great? God and Jeremiah talk to one another. God says, Jeremiah, you are right, and you actually only know the half of it. I am burning in my righteous anger at the injustice of all this. 
Look at Jeremiah 32, 33. God says, this people have turned to me their back and not their face. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to my instruction. They have turned my religion into a horrible thing. They have set up their abominations in my very own house. They're murdering their baby children and they're calling it a religious act. Oh yes, Jeremiah. Look at verse 36. Oh yes, Jeremiah. This city is indeed given over to justice. It is given over into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Okay, at this point, all you guys out there ought to be standing up and going, Yes! Give them hell, God! Bunch of miserable coyotes! But do you know what the very next verse says? When I came to verse 37, I had to read it three times. In fact, I had to go back and reread the previous three chapters because I said, I'm not getting this at all. What is going on here? I must have missed something. Seemingly out of nowhere, a complete and total non sequitur, God says, look at this. I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation and I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I, God, will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and I will rebuild them at first and I will cleanse them from all the guilt of their sin against me, and I will forgive all the guilt of their sin and rebellion against me. What? What? Why? If ever there were a people who had abused their privileges and spit in the face of God, this was surely them. Surely, God, you would be better off just scorching the earth, wiping them out, and be done with a whole lot of them. How could God ever forgive such wickedness and still not make a complete travesty of justice? Well, eventually, Jeremiah comes to the answer. In chapter 33... Verse 15, he says, God will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. What does he mean? Even in the year 587 B.C., God was looking forward to the coming 
of his righteous one, Jesus Christ. The Christ was going to come and he was going to do all the righteous living that Israel never could or would do. And then the Christ on the cross was going to absorb in himself all the righteous anger and the eternal punishment that Israel deserved for itself. Now, I don't know about you, but I can scarcely take that in. How in the world could God forgive all the evil, all the wrong, all the betrayal that had been done against him by his own people? I never could have found it in my heart to do that. Yet this is the astonishing forgiveness in the cross that was yet to come 600 years later. How incredibly big is the forgiveness in the cross? What a great scope of sin and evil it embraces. So let me ask you this question. What sin of yours can God not forgive? But someone might say to me, how possibly could the cross be that big? So big as to embrace all the vast wrongdoing of humanity. Now that's a fair question. And I think that perhaps some of the answer is found in the costliness of the cross. The costliness of the cross. There is a reason why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was horrified at the prospect of the cross. For he understood how great a load of sin he was about to bear. He knew that he would be cursed by heaven itself. Can we be honest this morning? Let's be honest, okay? There isn't an adult here who has not had that moment where the only way we could express our outrage at injustice was to curse our offender. Come on, be honest, whether out loud or at least under your breath. We've all said it, God damn you. You feel what I'm saying? Well, you see, that is exactly what God the Father did to the man, Jesus Christ. He laid on Jesus in the cross all the righteous judgment and outrage for every evil that had ever happened in the world. Yet receive this also. Jesus bore that curse so perfectly, so beautifully, so well did he absorb in his own body and blood the righteous anger for every human wrong 
that there was nothing left of the Father's wrath. There was nothing left but the Father's mercy for those who are in Christ Jesus. There was nothing left except the Father's words, all is well and all will be well. So what is your response to the cross this morning? May I suggest to you that there are only two responses that are worthy of the magnitude of the forgiveness which is found in the cross. Here's the first one. Receive deep in your heart, receive the forgiveness that the Father has for you. Are you carrying a load of guilt as you go through life? Somewhere in your thinking is that little voice that keeps coming back to you. Well, maybe if you just suffer enough guilt, somehow, some way, you can make atonement for what you've done wrong. But you and I will never able to be suffering enough. You and I will never be able to suffer deeply enough to meet the penalty that our wrongdoing requires. Jesus' suffering pays the price in full. Your guilt this morning isn't from the Christ because he has taken all of it for you. And it's the same with your shame, you know. It could be this morning that you think, well, if others really knew what I am like, they would say, well, shame on you. But the cross has dealt with that too. In Jesus' utter humiliation, he took your shame. There, his naked body cried out, Don't look, Father! Don't look. Don't look at her. Don't look at him. Look at me. Shame me instead. Think of them as you formerly thought of me. And here's the second response worthy of the cross of Christ. If you have received immeasurable forgiveness, then give to others what you have received. In our Old Testament text this morning, Joseph knew, hey, there's no need for vengeance here. God can take what others intend for evil and use it to accomplish his purposes in my life. In Joseph's case, his brother's treachery was the only way, think of it, the only way that some completely anonymous nomad shepherd boy could ever rise to be the prince of Egypt. 
And in doing so, God saved the whole Jewish nation. But the cross calls us to go even a step further. Consider Christians, we do not need to seek vengeance. We do not need to seek justice for ourselves. For justice has already been accomplished in the horror of Christ's suffering. Well, as we close this morning, it is Christ who bids us to consider if we have actually experienced for ourselves the power of the cross. The gospel parable calls us to reflect on justice, mercy, and equity, and how we stand with respect to them. The man who pleaded for his master's patience, he was just blowing smoke in every direction. He owed his master 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents does not equal 20 years' wages. It equals 200,000 years' wages. Be merciful, and I will repay you everything. What a stupid and impossible proposition. And the king knew it, too. Yet, in his mercy, he simply said, I forgive you everything. But when this servant, supposedly forgiven, meets another one who owns him owes him a hundred denarii, he won't even accept the most reasonable of propositions. In two years' time, everything could have been paid back with interest. Of course, all who heard of this matter were distressed, and well, they should have been. Whatever would possess the forgiven slave to behave in such an unreasonable and inequitable matter? Did he not know how much he was forgiven? Did he not recognize how impossible was his situation? Could he not see how great was the mercy he received? Could he not understand in comparison with his own debt how slight were the debts that others owed him? It was as if he had not received mercy at all. As we reflect on the astonishing nature of the Father's forgiveness in the cross, as we ponder its costliness and horror, Jesus bids his disciples to reflect carefully. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. May God grant us to be forgiven 
and to understand mercy and to comprehend what a great price has been paid for our forgiveness. Amen.